we welcome you to the Tabernacle Podcast, brought to you by the Tabernacle Baptist Church in Hickory, North Carolina. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit our website, tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. You can find other sermons like this one on Apple Podcast, YouTube, and Sermon Audio. It is our prayer that God has used this message to be an encouragement to your heart. Well, let's take our Bibles this evening and go with me to the New Testament to 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11. And we'll begin reading in verse number 2. 1 Corinthians chapter number 11 and verse number 2. Now, I praise you, brethren, that ye remember me in all things and keep the ordinances as I delivered them to you. But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ and the head of the woman is the man and the head of Christ is God and every man praying or prophesying having his head covered, having his head covered dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovered dishonoreth her head. Uh, for that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn. But if it be a shame for a man to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Excuse me, but if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. Verse 7. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as he is the image and glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. For the man is not of the woman, but the woman of the man. Neither was the man created for the woman, but the woman for the man. For this cause ought the woman to have power on her head because of the angels. Nevertheless, neither is the man without the woman, neither the woman without the man in the Lord for as the woman is of the man, even so is the man also by the woman, but all things of God. Judge in yourselves, is it comely that a woman pray unto God uncovered? Doth not even nature itself teach you that if a man have long hair, it is a shame unto him? But if a woman have long hair, it is a glory to her, for her hair is given her for a covering but if any man seem to be contentious, we have no such custom, neither the churches of God. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your word. And as we come together to your word this evening, we pray that you would open our eyes of understanding and help us to receive your truth. As we look at this passage, which can be difficult for us, we pray for the power of the Holy Spirit to enable us, enable me to proclaim it and preach it in faithfulness to your word and help us to receive it, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, as you notice, we've been going through the book of 1 Corinthians and as we came to chapter number eight, Paul began to deal with the subject of liberty the liberty of the believers, that is a, a subject that is often talked about in our age and, and mainly by those who want to correct what they believe is an overemphasis on external factors by 
pastors and church leaders who uh, in, in their terms would, would seek to bring people into some type of a legalistic bondage. And, of course, that has been an issue, no doubt. There have been, no doubt, abuses. We acknowledge that. There have been an overemphasis on some external factors for certain. And uh, the fruit of that has, has not been uh, what it ought to be or what, what it should have been. Uh, this we acknowledge and understand. But, unfortunately, much of what you hear today concerning Christian liberty is a response or a rebellious act or response toward uh, that overemphasis on external factors and really seeks a license to do whatever it is that you desire to do. It's come to a point today where any, any preaching or, in, or any teaching uh, that would restrict someone's behavior is almost automatically rejected or brushed aside. We have to guard against that. We have to guard against that. And we have to acknowledge that within our hearts uh, is, is, is a, 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 an enormous, and we may not like to confess this, uh, an enormous stronghold of rebellion or at least the potential for it. Because what most people don't like is for anybody to tell them what they should do. But if we submit to Christ, if we acknowledge that he is our creator and redeemer, our sovereign and our savior, then we must deal with the rebellion in our own hearts and acknowledge that he has the right uh, to command and to cause us to conform to his truth. So we come to this chapter, and, and it really deals with a subject that I think is timely for us because it's a subject of great discussion in our culture. What are the roles of men and women? And so I want to speak to you on this subject, men and women in the church, men and women in the church. And this is really <clears throat> somewhat of a difficult passage for us because it deals with the subject of women praying and prophesying in the context of the public corporate worship of the church. This is not at home. This is not sitting in a pew, but this is in a, an official capacity. I was thinking about that. It's very rare for us to have a woman lead in public prayer. I think in 14 years, I've asked one woman to pray publicly, and that was in, in, in a prayer meeting on a Wednesday night. Uh, when we were praying particularly for the women of this church in a group prayer type setting. But it's not something we typically do. And we do not have women teach publicly from the pulpit to men because of what the Bible teaches in, in 1 Timothy chapter 2. And we'll, we'll look at that in a little bit. Um, and then... So, so when we think about the context of this, a woman praying or prophesying in a public capacity, it, it's almost not an issue in this church. But then I thought about, well, we have women who sing, right? They stand uh, here on the platform with the choir and special music and sometimes solos, and, and uh, they sing. Well, what are they doing? 
What are they singing about? They're singing the truths of God's word. And so we have women involved in the worship of our church, and we're grateful for that. We're grateful for that. And when you approach a subject like this, in light of the culture in which we live, immediately the antenna of some arises to say, well, here goes those, those uh, bigoted people. And, and this is a popular term in this culture, uh, patriarchs, patriarchal uh, societies. And uh, there's a movement of rebellion against patriarchal a society, which means that a man is in the role of leadership. And those who are in rebellion against this patriarchal society, they point to the abuses of those who served in the capacity of the patriarchal or the fatherly role. And as I, as I acknowledge to you, all of us would have to acknowledge that there are abuses that take place. No doubt about that. But what this, this passage comes to is divine order. And I want you to just write down three words that, that I think will help us to, as we approach this passage, all right? Let me give you three words that I think are keys, uh, three words of application to help us. Number one is the word order, because this passage deals with order, order in the church. Number two is distinction. Distinction, the distinction between a man and a woman and their roles in an official capacity of leadership and in the preaching of the word of God. Order, distinction, and submission. Submission. Are we willing, all of us, to submit to God's order? And let's keep that in mind as we approach this text. Now, I want to tell you that I've, I've studied this text uh, for a period of weeks. Now, not every day for a period of weeks, but off and on for a period of weeks as I've tried to prepare this message. And I have read a number of commentaries, and I probably have too many quotes. So I'm going to tell you that ahead of time because I'm going to appeal to many helpers tonight, all right? And so if you'll bear with me, we'll try to make some sense of this passage and develop an understanding. Now, there are hurdles for us in this passage because Paul is writing to a church in, in Corinth uh, 2,000 years ago uh, that really had cultural norms that is very hard for us to comprehend and understand. The daily uh, ways of living, the life that they have, the terminology that they use, the issues that they dealt with are much different than what we deal with today. And so if we're going to interpret the Scripture, if we're going to understand the Scripture, we have some hurdles to clear. First of all, we have to understand the language of the Bible. We have to understand the wording and the terminology, and that's not always an easy thing to do. Then we need to understand the cultural and historical background of, of the people that the Bible is addressing. Who are they? Where did they live? What issues were they dealing with? What was life like? Those are difficult subjects sometimes for us to in, enter into. Uh, 
because we all have a context that we live in, a context that has shaped how we view things and how we think about things. And so we may respond to certain subjects in a, in a different light than people who lived in a different culture. For example, in this culture in which we live in this time period, there are numbers of people who want to tear down statues and who want to uh, tear down the names of those uh, who have once been honored and celebrated in their lives because in the cultural context of today, those people are not deemed as heroic like they once were. You see, culture changes, time periods change, criteria of how people view things change. And here's what I would say to this generation of people who, who wants to sit in judgment of previous generations, that one day generations will sit in judgment of you. A generation that does not have the context that you lived in. So context is important for us. Language is important for us if we're going to understand the Bible. And then we have to understand what are the particulars that Paul is addressing to the Corinthian church and what are the principles that we can draw from the particulars. What are the particulars? They may not apply to us directly. But what are the principles that we can draw from those particulars to help us and to teach us and to instruct us? So if you're still with me tonight, would you say amen? amen. All right, just making sure. Because this is, this is laborious work. I'm going to need my water. I may need a towel. And I need you to stay with me. Now, let me just read. This is, this, is a, this is taken from a commentary that I often read, Preach the Word Commentary. It was edited by Kent Hughes, and I think it helps us approach this text. He says, Paul has been talking about how the members of the church were exercising their rights and liberties in the world outside of the context of worship. That's what we noted in chapters 8 through 10. But here, Paul begins to talk about how the members of the church should exercise their rights and liberties within the church in the context of worship there is a shift from the life of the church in the world to the life of the church in the church so when we deal with chapter 11 through chapter number 16 we're going to deal with many complex challenging subjects and as we seek to understand what the apostle paul is saying by inspiration of the Holy Spirit, we need to understand that the primary focus of the chapters remaining in 1 Corinthians, that's chapters 11 through 16, the primary focus of, of those chapters are dealing with the public gatherings and the worship life of the church. So what is Paul going to deal with in chapters 11 through 16? Well, he's going to deal, as he does here, with the roles of men and women in the church. He's going to deal with the observance of the Lord's Supper and the abuses of it. He's going to do with the purpose and use of spiritual gifts and the misuse of them. He's going to deal with the need for love in the church. He's going to deal with the subject of tongues, speaking in other languages. What was the purpose of tongues and what is the proper use of tongues? He's going to deal with what's prohibited as far as tongues are concerned he will give an answer to those who deny the bodily resurrection of christ and he will deal with the topic of the collection of the saints the giving so these are are, are, are subjects that can be difficult to understand and they're controversial 
And so may God help us as we approach these, these, these concluding chapters in 1 Corinthians. Now, John Phillips says it this way. The matters under discussion remain the most controversial and complex in church life. Opinions differ as widely over the interpretation of these half dozen chapters as they did over the original issues centuries ago in the Corinthian church. At issue here is the controversial matter of the woman's role in the church. The rise of the feminist movement in our culture has made this portion of scripture a veritable battleground. Paul is accused of narrow-mindedness and of bias against women. What Paul does insist on here is order in the church. Order based on experience, common sense, observation, nature, and above all, scripture and divine revelation. Anyone who has a quarrel with the order, especially where men and women meet together on the grounds of a common salvation, have a quarrel not with him but with the Holy Spirit. Paul is not airing prejudice or male chauvinism in this passage. He is writing under the inspiration and illumination of the Holy Spirit who certainly knows what is best for the church he created and who makes no mistakes. Again, the Preach the Word commentary states it this way. The primary thrust of the passage is about how the church can please God in worship. Paul is calling the church to evaluate its worship practices to ensure that all due attention is being drawn to God and no undue attention is being drawn to the members of the church. There is a significant cultural distance then between us and the Corinthians. Some men were wearing head coverings and are growing their hair out in a way that reflected the attire worn by pagans in idolatrous worship It was an attempt to assimilate idolatrous culture. Now, we didn't live in Corinth. I've tried to to explain some of the practices of Corinth, but we know that Corinth was a pagan city. We know that there was a temple there that many people traveled to. Corinth was a center of commerce. Sailors and and, uh, those who traveled by land all converged there in Corinth. And in their pagan idolatry at their temple, In this religion, this wicked religion, immoral practices were carried out and conducted. There were temple prostitutes who who solicited the men and the passers-by and engaged them in adulterous and, and, and fornicating relationships in the name of religion. And they profited financially from it. Most of these women were slaves and they were used in, in such awful ways. We hear a lot about trafficking in our culture today. Well, trafficking is nothing new. In fact, the rights of Corinthian women were non-existent. Even many who were married were, were used as prostitutes by their husbands. There's some eye-opening books that, that would give you an understanding of the Roman culture and the Greek culture of that day and the dreadful role that many women had to play. And it is is amidst this backdrop that Paul is writing to the church. And and, and there's an effort here, as as we read from Kent Hughes' commentary, there's an effort here, a concern here that Paul had that, that some of the men were covering their head or letting their hair grow out long to emulate 
the priests of these pagan religion. In, in other words, they were copying the world, bringing that into the church to make the church a little more palatable uh, to the common person. Well, we see those practices today, don't we? Is the world becoming more like the church or the church becoming more like the world? Well, in most cases, we see that churches are becoming more like the world. In fact, it's hard to, dis it's hard to discern whether or not you're in a rock concert or at a nightclub or at a church. And many who have adapted this form of worship believe that that's what they have to do. And I think there's a great danger there. And that's what Paul is addressing in some regards concerning the appearance of men and women. Now, we have to understand something else about these temple prostitutes. They would cut their hair short. And by cutting their hair short, they were identifying themselves for who they were. So they were easy to know as far as culturally when you would see them if their hair was cut short, then you would know most likely who they were. And so Paul is concerned about that spirit and that appearance in the church. Now, here's what we need to understand. Appearance does matter. What we wear does matter. How we present ourselves matters. It matters. And as a body of believers, we have to understand that when we meet together, everything is to be done decently and in order. And therefore, we're to follow God's order in our lives, in our homes, and in the church. And to do that, we have to consciously choose to reject the thinking of a sin nature and our world, which is in rebellion against God. So that means we must submit to Christ. And so I gave you those three words. Do you remember those three words? The first word is what? Order. The second word is distinction. And the third word, submission. Now I'm going to try to outline this passage for you and give you some thoughts. Uh, we're going to spend the bulk of our time on number two. I've spent a lot of time giving you an introduction. Are you still with me? All right, very good. Number one, we see a word of commendation. A word of commendation. It's as if Paul, before he delivers the bad news, is going to find something nice to say. Which is always a good practice, right? Before you address the problem, say something nice. Now, I don't think Paul is concerned here about uh, acceptance or, or, or appeasing men. I think this word of commendation is, is obviously sincere and spirit guided and so we read it here in verse number two now i praise you or i commend you brethren that ye remember me and all things and keep the ordinances as i delivered them to you so paul is giving them a word of commendation and this word of commendation is 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 commending them for their adherence to the ordinances and the teachings of the apostle paul Paul has commended them then for their doctrinal purity and their adherence to the teaching of the Word of God. Now, John MacArthur writes this. He says, the basic problem in the Corinthian church did not concern doctrine but morals, not theology but lifestyle. 
They were orthodox, but not pure. They remembered and believed the cardinal truths about God's nature and work, but they did not live godly lives. And so Paul praises them for their strengths before he again begins to correct their weaknesses. In this case, their misunderstanding of male and female roles. So what we find out about this church at Corinth is that doctrinally they were pure. They sought to be pure. And they sought to follow the teaching of the apostle Paul. So this was a good church as far as doctrine goes. They, we know that they were a gifted church, but they were not necessarily a godly church. And Paul is going to address that, and he already has been in the previous chapters. He commended them for their adherence to the ordinances. We know there are two church ordinances, baptism and the Lord's Supper, and these ordinances are to be observed by the believers so we have a church that is doctrinally pure, that adheres to the teaching of the apostle, and it reminds us of the church at Ephesus to whom the Lord spoke. And he said in Revelation 21, or Revelation 2 rather, in verse 2, I know thy works and thy labor and thy patience, how thou canst not bear them which are evil. And thou hast tried them which say they are apostles and are not, and hast found them liars." He says, in other words, you have walked faithfully according to the scripture. You have tried those who are false prophets and you found out that they are false prophets. And verse four, he says this, nevertheless, I have somewhat against thee because thou hast left thy first love. We find sort of the same problems going on in Corinth. In form, in doctrine, pure. But in godliness, in behavior, in conduct, they had problems. So there's a word of commendation. And then we come secondly to a word of correction. And this is really the bulk of what we'll discuss this evening. A word of correction. He says in verse 3, But I would have you know that the head of every man is Christ, and the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. We're going to find that term head used quite often. We're going to find the term uh, of that deals with hair and covering quite often. Shorn, shaven, covered, head. These are terms we're going to find uh, in this passage. And, and as it's used here, the head of every man is Christ. It's speaking of the authoritative head, not the physical uh, head, not, not a part of our anatomy, but the authority. The head of every man is Christ, the head of the woman is the man, and the head of Christ is God. So we observe here the order that Paul sets forth. Let's begin at the top. The head of Christ is God. This is God the Father. Now Christ the Son, God the Father, God the Holy Spirit are co-equal. They're part of the Trinity, the triune God. None are subservient to the other in the matter of their role or in their essence. Jesus Christ is equally with God. He thought it not robbery to be equal with God. That is because he is God. He was God. He is God. He is eternal with the Father. He is the one who spoke this universe into existence. The Lord Jesus Christ did. All things were made by him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So in his essence, he is equal to the Father. He is not subordinate to him in essence. 
but he has voluntarily submitted himself to the headship of his father. He did so in order that the work of redemption might go forward. When Jesus walked upon this earth, he said, I do only those things which please the father. His mission was to accomplish the will of the father. He became a man without ceasing to be God, and he submitted himself. He became obedient unto death, even the death of the cross. He did so in order to redeem us. So we understand order here, that, that uh, the head of Christ is God the Father. And then we find that the head of man is Christ. The head of man is Christ. He said again in verse number three, but I would have you to know that the head of every man is Christ. And the head of the woman is the man. So we see that the woman has a head. And the head of the woman is the man. This is the divine order that God has ordained and set forth. As we live in a sinful world, that order gets misused and abused. But nonetheless, it does not change the fact that this is God's divine order. Now, speaking of this, John Phillips said this. He said, by the same token, the woman is answerable to the man. Just as man is answerable to God, the woman is answerable to the man. This does not imply, now notice this please, because here's the criticism that uh, goes forward to counter what I'm teaching you from the word of God. This does not imply male superiority, nor does it imply female inferiority. It simply states it to be a fact that in their respective roles in society, in the home and in the church, this is God's ordained order and state of affairs. No amount of argument is going to change it. All attempts to defy it can only lead to breakdown and chaos. Look around. Breakdown and chaos is everywhere. It's Pride Month. What is celebrated? Sexual immorality and wickedness. And the transgender movement seems to have the loudest microphone in the place. And children are being taken to drag clubs, nightclubs where men parade around as women. They're being taken to pride ceremonies uh, where they're seeing men wearing outfits that cannot be described in this audience. Imagine such wickedness and chaos this is where we are when we reject God's order what does it lead to breakdown and chaos God made a man and he made a woman and he put innate things in them he designed the home and if we're going to have God's blessing on our home and our marriages and, and, and in our the life uh, of our, our domestic life then we must do things as God ordained in fact, that's true in every area of our life. If we're going to have the hand of blessing on God's church, then we have to do things as God has ordained them. Will there be problems when we do things the way God ordained them? Yes. Why? Because we're sinners. But there'll be bigger problems when we get outside of the order of how God has ordained things. So immediately, 
as, as we speak, as, as, as this message is, is being preached, as you're hearing it, as you're reading this passage, we're confronted by a culture and its thinking that is shaped in many, in many ways our own thinking. Oh, man, pastor, I can't believe you're going there. Oh, this is going to be controversial. Oh, this won't be accepted. I don't know if I like this. Well, then the question comes, who do we follow? Who do we follow? Do we follow the world? Do we follow our hearts? <laughs> our hearts that are desperately wicked and deceitful above all things? Or do we follow the Lord Jesus? That's the question our young people are going to have to determine growing up in this world. Because not only is it unpopular to believe this, it is becoming increasingly difficult to hold to this position in a public way because of the persecution that will come and the pressure that will come to conform to the standards of the world. There is a group of people who want nothing more than to close the doors of Bible-believing, Bible-preaching churches who want to sue Christian schools who require that their teachers are people who observe the biblical truth and teach it and honor it. The world is growing increasingly hostile against this message, but we must understand this is God's order. So concerning those who teach counter to God's word, let me read this from John MacArthur. Some leaders, Christian leaders and writers, have gone so far as to teach principles that attempt to redefine or even alter biblical truths to accommodate the standards of contemporary thinking in the world. To do that, of course, they have to believe that Paul, Peter, and other scriptural writers added some of their own opinions to God's revealed truth or that the apostles sometimes taught culturally determined customs rather than divinely revealed standards. In other words, if I'm to adopt the thinking of many who would say today that a woman can be a pastor, then I have to say that Paul and Peter were wrong. Or I have to say that God's word changes with the times. But God's word doesn't change with the times. Forever his word is settled in heaven. So you have women like Beth Moore who want a position of public preaching. And there are those who were within the Southern Baptist Convention who, who had the conviction to stand against that. And there was a great debate, even among Southern Baptists, on the role of who, and, and it still continues. And by the way, it's not exclusive to Southern Baptists. It's everywhere. But this is more, uh, I, I imagine this debate has become more of a, a publicized debate. Uh, until ultimately Beth Moore left the Southern Baptist Convention. And those who stood against Her position, let me state it even better, those who stood with the biblical position were portrayed as men who were patriarchal, who were old white men. That term gets thrown around a lot today to discredit people. Uh, they were discredited in that way as being people who were exclusive and people who were not with the times. 
Well, the truth of the matter, it doesn't matter if you're old or young, white or any other color, your personal preferences and cultural knowledge doesn't matter. All that matters is what God has said. What God has said. And so therefore, we land where the scriptures land. We don't do it unkindly, and at times we have. And when I say we, I'm not necessarily speaking about us, but I'm talking about those who share our convictions. And we have to understand that we're dealing with a world that many of these truths that we hold to are foreign to. And in fact, they not only are they foreign to them, but they view them as immoral. And if we're going to teach them the right position, then we have to do it with grace. You know, just turning up the volume and getting red-faced is not going to change people's hearts. Speaking the truth in love is what we must do. And so we have to understand this because immediately this, this is like a, a red alert, you know. <laughs> and and we, what we cannot do is capitulate to the standards of the world. We have to stand on the truth of God. We have to understand the role of women. As I said in that Greek culture, they lived in, a, in the background. They had no rights. Uh, women in America, and, and we know that Americans are, are probably the most discontented people in the world and the most blessed at the same time, have more rights today than in any other civilization in the history of the world. But not then. It was the gospel of Christ that gave them dignity and honor. And women should be honored. They should be cherished. The Bible teaches that, that a husband is to cherish his wife. Girls, if you're dating a boy, if you're in a relationship with a boy who doesn't cherish you and treat you as a prized possession, guess what? He's not worthy of you. Don't compromise your morality to please him. Not only did women not have a place in the Greek culture, but even think of the Jewish culture, the Old Testament culture. John Phillips writes this, a woman played little or no part in the synagogue service. Devout Jewish men actually prayed and thanked God that they had not been created women. <laughs> I mean, they would actually do that publicly. Or thank you that you didn't make me a woman. A woman could not even make up the necessary quorum that was required to organize a synagogue. You had to have 10 men to make a synagogue. Women did not even count in the assembly. No matter how many women there were, they could not form a synagogue. So in Christ, and we need to understand this, in Christ, women are emancipated. They're set free. You shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. Women are to be loved, they're to be honored, they're to be cherished. So we have a word about order here in verse 3. Then we have a word about offense. What is offensive? Look at it in verse 4. Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covereth, dishonoreth the Lord. All right? So here's where the offense is taking place. It is taking place in the context of the worship of the church and how they practice this worship. And they would cover their heads. Uh, how many of you grew up with this, don't wear a hat in the church house? Yeah. 
Well, we've lost that in this culture. And by the way, someone may come in wearing a hat. Now, how should we respond? Well, not in an unkind fashion. Take that hat off. That's not going to help. So don't do that. But we've been taught that. We've been taught that by people who learned that that was a sign of respect. And where did they get that? Well, they get it from this chapter. Uh, Then... Especially in the olden days, women would wear hats to church. That practice has sort of subsided, right? I don't remember the last time a woman wore a hat to church here. But it's an uncommon thing. It's acceptable, but it's certainly not a common thing. Well, in this culture, it was common. And that's what we have to understand. We have to have context. It was common. And there were offenses that were taking place because of the way that they were worshiping. So we look at it in verse 4. Would you read it with me? Every man praying or prophesying, having his head covered, dishonoreth his head. But every woman that prayeth or prophesieth with her head uncovereth, dishonoreth her head. For that is even all one as if she were shaven. For if the woman be not covered, let her also be shorn, But if it be a shame for a woman to be shorn or shaven, let her be covered. For a man indeed ought not to cover his head for as much as the image and the glory of God. But the woman is the glory of the man. Now, I got a lot to cover, but I'm out of time. And as eager as I am to get through this, I think it'd be best to stop right here and hit the pause button. Thank you for listening. We pray that God has used his word to speak to you today. If you'd like to learn more about Tabernacle, you can visit us online at tabernaclebaptistchurch.com. There, you'll find additional information about our church, opportunities to partner with us financially, as well as other resources that we hope can be a help to you. May God bless you, and thank you once again for listening.